0: Heavenly Father, we um we come before you this morning, Lord. And we just ask that you would uh that you would be in our midst, Lord, and that you would that you would just speak to your people. You would meet our needs, Lord, and that you would um you bring comfort and conviction whatever it is we need, Lord. That you would just that you would be our God and that we would be your people this morning. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So it's been three weeks or so, about a month actually, since we've been in Acts. And um, you know, we took off a couple weeks for, for Christmas. We had a New Year's message last, uh, last week. And so you may remember that four Sundays ago, we started Acts chapter 13. And we got through the first 12 verses. And if you don't remember that, it's okay. I didn't either. I had to kind of go back and try to figure out where we were because it's been a long time. It's been a, been a busy season. But you may remember that Paul and Barnabas had just set out on their first missionary journey. Remember, they were there in, in Antioch and, and the church set aside them and a group of godly men and they basically just kind of released them and said, go, go out into the world and, and share the gospel message. And then we find them heading off towards the island of Cyprus there in the Mediterranean Sea. And so we find Barnabas and his party there sort of working their way across the island, sharing the gospel with, with pretty much anyone who would listen. And remember, towards the end of their trek, they encountered uh, Sergius Paulus, that, that Roman proconsul. And remember, he was accompanied by his, his wizard, his sorcerer, Alemus Bargesus. Now, of course, having watched a lot of Lord of the Rings over the holidays, I think of the situation and, and, and automatically Grima, right? Wormtongue, he comes to my mind there. Remember there, he was there. He's kind of King Theodon's right right hand guy, kind of whispering advice in his ear. And <clears throat> that's kind of the situation here, right? This, this. Alimus Bar Jesus character. He seems like he's a he's kind of a weaselly guy. He's a shifty guy. He's not a very trustworthy character. And and remember, as as Barnabas and Saul are trying to communicate the gospel message, Alimus he keeps he keeps interrupting and trying to distract the pro because. Because ultimately he's afraid that the proconsul might get saved and he's going to lose his, his position and his power and his authority. And so he continues to interrupt. And in verse 10, Paul says this. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop? And he strikes this wizard blind and he shares the gospel, and, 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 and Sergius gets saved. And this really kind of sets the tone for the rest of their missionary journey. Right? There's opposition, people are rising up against them, but miracles are happening, and the Lord is moving, and, and people are, are, are coming to Jesus. And so this morning as we pick up the text, it's right after this. It's right after this event with Alimus and and and, and Sergius Paulus. And a little warning, as we get into the passage this morning, it's a a long passage. We're going to look at about 30 verses. I know about halfway through you're going to start getting hungry and looking at your little communion packet, save it. That's not what it's for. We're going to have communion afterwards. But we're going to kind of move through this passage pretty quick, much faster than our, our usual rate. And this passage, it, it contains a lot, of, a lot of history, a lot of information. And, you know, we could easily break it down and spend a lot of time in this passage. But we're not, we're going to kind of just move through it because the reason Paul is including it all in this sermon that he's about to give is, is to make a point. So we're going to focus on the point that Paul is making more than the content here. And as we do start to go, you know, it's kind of long, so if you start to doze off, I've given the usher super soakers, and they're up in the balcony. They're actually, actually, the truth is, I you know I have a little bit of insomnia sometimes, and um, and I I was up really late last night studying some content, kind of so they're up there for me actually. If I start to doze while I'm teaching, they're just going to give me a little. So that, that's what that'll be. Anyway, I don't know why I go off on these things. Um, so we're not going to look too in depth at anything, but instead. So we're going to look at the point that Paul is making and why he includes all these elements in his sermon. So we're going to pick up the text in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, to Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. Now, we see in the text here that Paul and the guys, they leave Cyprus, they go to Perga, and then to Pisidia. And, and Pisidia is this Greek city in what's modern-day Turkey. And, and this, this city is in what's, um, what we know as the region of, of Galatia. So later on, when Paul would write the, the epistle to the Galatians, He's writing to the church that he's going to plant in these next few verses here in chapter 13. But as we get into the text, I don't want you to miss what just happened. You know, it's easy to read verses 13 and 14 and just kind of move on. It's sort of the the building up for the main point. But in verse 13, there is a, a major plot shift that just happened. There's a major change in the narrative that just took place, and we didn't even notice it as we read through the verses. Up to this point, we've seen Barnabas and Saul and their their missionary band out doing the work of the ministry. And Barnabas, up to this point, was very clearly the leader. Remember, Barnabas is the one who first took Paul in under his wing. He took him to Jerusalem and introduced him. Barnabas is the one who took... Paul up to Antioch, he was the very clear leader. But here, kind of subtly, Luke makes this change. It's subtle, but it's very clear. And and we see this through the rest of the book of Acts. This is is Paul's story, right? From here on out, Paul becomes the lead guy. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul going out and doing anything. It's it's, it's Paul, he and, and whoever happens to be with him at that moment. And to Barnabas's credit, he seems cool with it. He's okay with it. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of amazing because most of us, right, if, if we have a position, if we've been given authority and we have respect and all that, and somebody takes it away from us and gives it to somebody else, and then we're under them, that's hard, isn't it? Yeah, we don't really like that kind of a transition of power when, when we go down. But Barnabas here, he, he recognized that the Lord was doing something new and different. He recognized that the Lord wanted Paul up front. And, and his, his attitude seemed to be, you know, if this is the Lord, will, who, who am I to argue against it? And Luke adds another little note before we get into the main portion of the text. And, and this little side note, it doesn't matter much at this point, but in a couple chapters, we're going to see it become very important. Luke notes that John leaves the company and that he returns to Jerusalem. Now, this particular John, right? There's a few Johns in Scripture. This particular John is also known as John Mark or simply just Mark sometimes. And this particular John or John Mark or Mark, right? He is the author of the gospel according to Mark. And as it happens, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Luke doesn't give us any details, and we don't know what happened. It may be that, you know, missionary life was just too hard for Mark. Maybe maybe he missed his family. Maybe he missed his grandma's cookies. We don't know exactly what the situation is here. But we see in a couple chapters that this departure that John Mark makes, it's, it's on bad terms. And in fact, this causes a rift that, that's so bad that eventually it's going to break up this ministry partnership between Barnabas and Paul. Later on, Mark wants to go on a missionary journey again, and, and Barnabas says, Okay, it, let's give you a second chance. Let's go. in. Paul says, Uh-uh. He left us once. We're, I'm not falling for that again. And remember what happens is Barnabas and Mark go off and do ministry, and Paul takes a new partner, Silas. And they go off and do ministry. But it says here in verse 14, On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So remember, Paul's typical method is that he would roll into a new region, a new town, a new city, And the first thing he would do is he would seek out the local synagogue. And he would go in and he would proclaim Christ to the the local Jews. And typically we find that he would get chased out. And after he left the synagogue, he would go into the marketplaces. He would go into the public squares and he would proclaim the gospel there. And this is exactly what Paul does here. He arrives in Antioch, Pisidia. And he goes to, the, to the, the local synagogue there. And by the way, in Scripture, there's, there's a lot of Antiochs. There was a particular Caesar who, who for whatever reason, he liked the name. And he, he founded like 14 different Antiochs. There's Antioch of Syria and Antioch of Pisidia. And there, there's a lot of different Antiochs. And so this is a different Antioch than this group of men were sent out from, obviously. And so they go into the synagogue, and typically when you would go into a synagogue, right, they would start, they would have a reading from the law, and they would have a reading from the prophets, and then they'd have a time of prayer, and and they had this little thing that they went through. And after that, it was the custom that if they had any, any guest teachers present that day, they would give them an opportunity to share. And it was apparent for whatever reason that Paul was a rabbi, that Paul was a Jewish teacher, and maybe it was the way that he dressed, maybe the way that he spoke. there was something about him that indicated that he was a a guest of of distinction right and, and maybe they knew who he was. maybe they knew of his conversion, maybe they didn't maybe they just maybe they just were tired of their rabbi and they wanted to hear somebody else. I can understand how that would happen. you know it's uh it's rough hearing from the same guy over and over again um, so. They ask Paul if he wants to share. And of course, Paul, he knew of this custom. And he was planning for it. And he was ready to to bring the word on on a moment's notice here. And and there's a principle. Never ask a pastor to preach if you're not ready for it. Because we always say yes. But we're always ready to do it. And so they ask Paul, and Paul says, yeah. And verse 16, so Paul stands up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So you see the scene. Paul, he approaches the podium and he grabs the mic, right? And remember, by all accounts, Paul is short. He's bald. He's not a great public speaker. He doesn't have a, a commanding, charismatic presence, He stands up and he says, Jews, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to what I have to say to you today. And then in the next 24 verses, Paul is going to give them a lesson on Jewish history and prophecy and, and God's sovereign hand in dealing with the nation of Israel. Now listen, we know later in Acts that Paul one time gives a Bible study until it goes well into the middle of the night. And he goes so long that people are falling asleep, and a young man falls out the window and breaks his neck and dies. So we know that Paul isn't given to short sermons. But we can read this passage in just a couple minutes, right? So so here's what's going on, I think. Luke, he doesn't give the whole sermon verbatim, right? He doesn't write down the whole sermon word for word. What Luke is doing here is he's giving the highlights of Paul's sermon. He's giving the the cliff notes of the message. And this sermon that that Paul preaches, it breaks down into three parts. Paul talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of history, Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, and Jesus as the justifier of lost people. And if we start in verse 17 we see Paul begin to unpack this first point, that Jesus was the fulfillment of history. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their lands as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So Paul says, look, God has always been with the nation of Israel. Even from before they were a nation. Way back, God chose Abram, right? God called Abram out of the world. He called him out of an idolatrous, pagan society. And God called Abram into a relationship with himself. And so God, he begins to start this, this godly legacy with the most unlikely group of guys. And, and he, so he, he starts this nation with this couple. I was going to say with this young couple, but they're not, right? They're an old couple, Abram and Sarai. And remember, he begins to grow them. He changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. Remember, he gives them a son. He, he brings life where there was previously no life. Abraham has Isaac. Remember, Isaac goes on to have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons go on to become the, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you remember how the Sunday school unfolds, right? Joseph, the the second youngest one, he's sold into slavery because he's sort of the daddy's boy and and all the other brothers despised him. He ends up getting taken to Egypt where where he's sold into servitude. He ends up finding himself in prison. And then then one day, kind of miraculously overnight, he ends up becoming the, the prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the world. And shortly after that, the, his brothers and their families, they all move to Egypt. And, and they're given this region where they, where they begin to put down roots, and they begin to grow, and they begin to prosper. But eventually, that old dynasty is, is disposed of. And, and a new dynasty of pharaohs, the Hyksos dynasty, they come in, and, and they, they didn't have that connection. They didn't have that relationship with the Hebrew people. They didn't share that gratitude towards the Hebrew people that the, that the former leadership did. And, and what was happening was the Hebrew people, they were their growth was outpacing the Egyptian population. And so they recognized that, you know, if an enemy from outside Egypt came and rose up against Egypt and the Hebrew people were to side with them, they would overpower Egypt. So this new dynasty, they, they enslaved the Hebrew people. And for nearly four centuries, the Hebrew people suffered under the hands of the pharaohs. But Paul says the Lord was with them. And he kept them alive. And he sustained them and he grew them. Now, I'm sure it didn't feel like that at the time, did it? When they were going through that. They might not have seen God's hand moving. They may have even felt abandoned by God at this point. Centuries later, Isaiah would write this, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's what's going on here. Even though they didn't see God moving, he was still there upholding them with his righteous right hand, even when they didn't recognize it. And I point that out because that's how it is so often in our lives, isn't it? Sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of of hard times and struggles, and, and all of a sudden we start to feel like we've been abandoned by God in our time of greatest need, when we needed him most, sometimes it feels like he, he left us. And if we could only if we could only pull back the curtain, right? If we could only see behind the scenes, we would realize how much the Lord is actually doing, how much He's working on our behalf. If we could only see the reality of the situation, we would realize how much worse it could be, how much worse it would be if the Lord were not there holding everything together for us, working continually on our behalf. And it's important to note that as the people were there in Egypt, the Lord was preparing a home for them, wasn't he? He was preparing a place for them. He was preparing the promised land for them. And so we see he, he set the people free from Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. And he, and, he, and, he, and he sent the people into the land, he drove out the seven Canaanite nations before them. But this process, Paul says, it took 450 years. That's a long time, right? Sometimes, it seems like the Lord doesn't move at the pace, at the speed that we would like him to. You know, we, especially us modern people, modern Western people, You know, we have a plan and we have a calendar and we have a schedule and we have them all synced on our phones and our computers and our pads and and all this. And here's the thing, the Lord has a plan and a schedule too, but it's not always the same as ours. And and we, I think just kind of our nature, we're always trying to take that Lord's schedule and, and we're trying to make it work with ours. We're trying to sync his schedule up with ours. We're trying to sync his calendar up with ours. And it doesn't work like that. We, if we want to be on the same page as the Lord, we need to sync ourselves up with him and with his word and with his will and with his timing for our lives. And it's hard, isn't it? Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was a French French Jesuit priest. And he said a lot of weird stuff that isn't good, but he said this that I particularly like. He said, above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, is the law of all progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. I like the principle that he lays out there. Trust in the slow work of God. That's hard. Patience in hard times is difficult. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. nobody, Nobody enjoys that. Nonetheless, we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust him for the outcome. Even when we don't see what the outcome is going to be. Even when we don't understand what's going on in our lives. We we know that his heart is for us. We know that he is in control and that he has a plan. There's a there's a principle that we need to understand. And there's kind of three parts. First, If God had good intentions for us, but no power, his good intentions wouldn't matter, would they? If God was truly omnipotent, but didn't care about us, that wouldn't be a comfort either, would it? But the fact of the matter is this. We serve an all-powerful God who loves us deeply and passionately, and always has our best interests in mind, but here's what we need to understand: when it comes to the Lord, He's looking at the He's looking at the long game. He's looking at what's going to bring the greatest good in our lives and the greatest good to the church and the kingdom of God in in an eternal perspective. And because he is looking at things sort of through that long lens through the eternal perspective, sometimes it doesn't seem like he's working. But he's just not working in ways that we can see at that moment. But he's always at work in our lives, always working all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Verse 20, it says, And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Paul says the Lord used judges to deliver the people. He's talking about Samson and Gideon and Ehud. And, you know, for another few centuries, the Lord, he preserved his people despite their, frankly, poor behavior, right? The Lord was with them. He didn't give up on the people despite their their constant and continual rebellion against him, their constant return to idolatry, right? They, 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 They kept going back. They kept messing up but the Lord still preserved them. Paul writes in Philippians, and he says, He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That is such a profound verse, isn't it? Just because we mess up and fail, that doesn't mean that God has done in our lives. Just because we mess up doesn't mean that, I mean, God's not shocked. Right, when we mess up, the Lord doesn't say, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I, I, I picked the wrong guy in last year's draft. I, I, I should have I left that guy to Buddha or Muhammad. I should have picked somebody else. Listen, church, understand this. When the Lord chose you for his team, he already knew how much work you would be. He already knew how much trouble you were going to cause. He already knew how difficult you can be. He already knew how many times you would fail and fall. And he chose you anyway. And he began that good work in your life. It says he began a good work and he'll be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to the very end. And I like that idea. You know, the Lord's not just going to let us slip away. Verse 21, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So the people here, the nation of Israel, you know They're they're being judged by or ruled by prophets and judges at this point. And, and they're, they're, they're growing tired of it. They're growing tired of, of being ruled by God. They're saying, you know, this stupid theocracy. Right? We want a king like all the other kids have. And, and they start rebelling and crying out for a king. So the Lord says, okay. And he gives them Saul. And Saul ruled over them for 40 years. And Saul... He looked like all that, right? Saul, he looked kingly. Saul was what you would expect a king to look like. He was big, he's strong, he's good-looking, he's well-spoken. Scripture says that he, he stood head and shoulders above all the other men, right? He was, the, he was the natural choice. He was the natural world's choice. But he wasn't the right choice spiritually. Saul had it all going on on the outside, but he was missing it all where it mattered. He was missing it all on the inside. And it's interesting when when the Lord chose the Saul that he was going to use to rock the world, a couple centuries later, he used a different criteria, didn't he? He wasn't looking for somebody who had it all together on the outside. He was looking for someone with a devoted heart. And I think that that should be a lesson for, for a lot of us. It should be a lesson for anyone who's looking for a spouse, right? It doesn't matter how well the gift is wrapped, does it? What matters is what's on the inside. I, um, I'm the worst gift wrapper of all time. And I have to confess, I don't see my wife here so I can say it, it's a little bit on purpose. I do such a bad job that she never asked me to wrap the presents. So it works out in everybody's favor. But here's the thing. Would you rather get a beautiful little jewelry box with nothing in it or a crumpled up old cloth that had a diamond ring inside of it? Of course, you'd rather have the diamond ring, right? Saul here He reigned for 40 years, but it was 40 years in the flesh. It was 40 years of bad decisions. It was 40 years of of leading the nation in the wrong direction. And eventually, after his continual missteps, and there's a series of events, him consulting the witch of Endor and all that stuff, the Lord finally says, okay, that's it. I'm cutting you off. And the Lord retires Saul with a spear and a sword, right? And he calls David up from the bush leagues. And David at this point, he doesn't look like much at all. David is the youngest of 10 sons of a man named Jesse. And the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, look, I want you to go to Jesse's house and you're going to anoint one of his sons as as king. And so he gets there and says, hey, Jesse, bring your sons up. I need to look at them. And so Jesse brings up the first son and he's a... He's a strapping buck. He's a big guy. He looks like the king. He looks like, uh, I forgot his name again. What's the guy from from Beauty and the Beast? Somebody shouted out first service and now I can't remember. Gaston, yes. He was a Gaston kind of guy, right? A strapping young guy. And and Samuel says, yes, here he is. This is the new king. He he fits the bill. The Lord said, nope, it's not him. So Jesse brings up the next oldest one not him, works his way through all the lists. None of them fit the bill. And Samuel said, don't you have any other sons? Yeah, we got one. He's just a boy, though. He's out, he's out in the field tending the goats. But that was the one, wasn't it? That's the one the Lord chose. And it wasn't because of his stature. It wasn't because of any of those outward things. It was because David had a heart for the Lord. David had a heart full of love for God. David had a heart of worship. Now, as you read through, as you read through you know 2 Samuel, and you read through 1 Chronicles, and, and you read through some of these books, it's clear that, that David was kind of a fool sometimes, wasn't he? He, he failed big time. You know, he, he went big. But here's the thing his defining characteristic wasn't any of those things. His defining characteristic was he loved God and that he was a man after God's own heart. And sometimes we think that God is is looking for perfect people to serve him. But he's not. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for real people. He's looking for authentic people. He's looking for people who love him with all their hearts. He's looking for those who have a a heart after God. And I think the obvious question for us is, do we? Do you have a heart that longs for God above all else? Do I have a heart? Do we collectively have hearts that that long for God above anything else in this world? As we move into verse 23, we see the second point. Jesus as as the fulfillment of prophecy. We saw him as the fulfillment of history, and now we're going to see him as the fulfillment of prophecy. And and Paul just briefly touches on this in verse 23, and then he goes to the third point, and then he circles back around to the second point again. But he says this in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, so, so far, the Jews in the synagogue where Paul's preaching, they're... They're they're loving Paul's message. Yeah, we love God, we love our people, we we love our history and and our heritage. Every point Paul makes, he's getting tons of amens from the crowd, hallelujah, you know. People are all excited. And then Paul starts to shift gears a little bit. And all of a sudden, everybody just quiets down. People start to feel a little bit uneasy. Right? Paul says, look, David was a man after God's heart. One of his, but one of his descendants, he says. Jesus, he's the one. He's the one that God promised us. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the one that we've been waiting for. And he moves here into 24, and, and he talks about how Jesus is the justifier of lost people. He says in verse 24, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist was well-known and well-liked among the Jews. Even way out here in, 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 in Pamphylia, the people knew who John was, and they revered him. Even a decade, over a decade after he died, he was, he was still well regarded. And sure, he was, he was a little crazy. Right? He lived out in the wilderness. He wore a gunny sack and ate bugs and honey all day. But it was clear to the people that John the Baptist spoke on behalf of God. And so the people went out to hear what he had to say. And so Paul, he's kind of playing on that. And he says, look, you guys all love John the Baptist. You guys took that pilgrimage out to the wilderness to hear from him. Well, great. What was his message? He says his message was that you need to repent and turn from your sins so that you can be forgiven. And Paul says further his message was this. Don't look at me. I'm not the one you're looking for. I can't set you free from your sins. I can't forgive your sins, John the Baptist said. I can't deliver you from bondage. But there's one coming after me who can. The Messiah is coming. And John says, I'm not even unworthy to unlace his sandals. Now that's kind of, that's always struck me as kind of an interesting phrase. I'm not worthy to to unlace his sandals. And I learned something new this week. In those days, there were, there were certain rules regarding rabbis and their students or their disciples. Sort of a, a code of conduct. If you wanted to become a rabbi, you had to sort of attach yourself to a rabbi. And you had to follow him around and you had to sort of apprentice under him. And so they, they codified a list of rules as, as to what was expected of the rabbi and what was expected of his students, of his disciples, just to make sure that, that one group didn't take advantage of the other group. And one of the written rules was that a rabbi was not allowed to ask his disciple to untie his sandals. Now, that must have happened at some point for them to do that, right? At some point, there must have been some rabbi sitting down making his disciples come and take his shoes off and rub his feet after the long day. And so they said, you know, that's that's not acceptable. That's too far. And John, of course, he's aware of this. And so he's kind of playing on that. And he says, look, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how worthy, that's how good, that's how holy the coming Messiah is. And John says, I can't save you, but he can. He can do it. He can deliver you. He can set you free from the power of sin. Paul says, look, he freed the people from Egypt. He protected them with the judges. He sent a godly king to rule over them. And now he has come himself to deliver you from your sins. And John the Baptist basically says, look, you guys are looking at me as though I am something. He says, but it's not me. It's all about Jesus. It's about the one who's coming after me. And Paul goes on in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt in him, worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So Paul says, look guys, we're all children of Abraham. We all love God. And I want you to hear this message. He says we, and he's talking about his group, There, he's talking about the church, He says, we have received the message of salvation. And we have it here for you. It's Jesus. Paul says, look, our leaders missed it. Those in Jerusalem, he says, they didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus that the prophets were talking about. And they condemned Jesus to death not even realizing that while they were condemning him, they were fulfilling the prophecies written about him. You know, of course, he's, he's referencing Zechariah and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53, where it talks about how the Messiah would come and, and he would be rejected and he would suffer and he would be beaten and crucified and how he would die for our sins so that we could find life in him. And Paul says, look, they didn't even have a good reason They didn't even have legal grounds to execute Jesus, but they asked Pilate to do it anyway. And verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Don't miss what Paul just said there in verse 29. It says, and when they had carried out all that was written of him. What Paul is saying is, look, Jesus' death, everything that happened surrounding his, his arrest and his crucifixion, that was all part of the plan. It was all foretold. And Paul says, look, man killed him but God raised him from the dead. That's the power of the gospel right there, the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's nothing else. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't have anything to stand on. But Paul says, God did raise him from the dead, and he appeared to many. He appeared to to those who had followed him up from Galilee. He appeared to over 500 people at once. And Paul says, Jesus died for your sins. He died to pay the penalty for all those times that you broke God's standard. But death could not hold him down. He rose again on the third day. And, And again, he didn't do it in secret. He did it in a very public way. He proclaimed his resurrection so that everybody could see it. And he says in verse 32, and we bring you the good news that of what God has promised to the fathers. Paul says, look, we we are witnesses. We came here to proclaim the name of Jesus. We pro- came to proclaim the message of salvation of of hope and of deliverance and of of second chances. We came to proclaim the the promise of a Messiah that was given to our people in time past. And he's arrived, and, and we're here to tell you about it. In verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul says, God has fulfilled his promise of salvation and redemption. He told David that that the Messiah would come through his family line and it happened. And, And David prophesied through the inspiration of the Spirit that the Messiah would die but that he wouldn't stay dead. That his body wouldn't see corruption. That's to say that his body wouldn't wouldn't rot and decay in the grave. And of course, this is Jesus they're talking about, who rose again. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perished. For I am working in your days a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So Paul says, we're here to proclaim his name. That pretty much is the the summary of Paul's whole ministry, isn't it? That's all that Paul was about, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And listen, church, that isn't just Paul's mission. That's all of our mission as believers, to proclaim the name of Jesus, to proclaim the one who, who, who lived and died and lives again. Now, sometimes we as Christians, we, we get accused of, of proselytizing, don't we? Well, Duh. That, that's, our, that's our whole mission as believers, isn't it? We're supposed to be doing that. We're, that. That's the whole reason we're here. We should be accused of that, and it better be true. Our, our, our whole purpose, our, our whole mission in life should be proclaiming the name of Jesus. And as Paul says, through him, the forgiveness of sins. And he says, everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. Now, by the world standards, I think most of us here are probably pretty good people. You know, I, I think of myself, I imagine myself a pretty good guy. I love my family. I, I help other people. I try to live a good, clean life. And, you know, I like to imagine if there were a scale on one end, if, if all the worst people ever are gathered there, if, if, if Joseph Stalin and Idi Amin and Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler are all down there, and, you know, Jesus and Mother Teresa are at the other end. You know, I'd like to think that I'm about 70 75% good guy. You know, and my, my five-year plan is to get to 82%. You know, I, I'm working that direction. And, and that's how we all kind of like to think of ourselves. But reality is so different. If if there were indeed such a scale, I would live right next door to Genghis Khan. And you'd live across the street from him. We'd all be neighbors. The reality is, there is no true righteousness in me. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing good in any of us. And frankly, for a lot of us, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? That there's nothing good in us. As Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, there's no good thing. Well, I'm a little bit good. No, he says you're not, we're not. In reality, the scale of righteousness is very lopsided. All of us, are on one side, and Jesus is on the other. We all have received a, a failing grade, you know. And you may remember in school, right? There, there's a failing grade, but sort of an almost passing failing grade, right? You know, there's there's D minus, and maybe you failed, but you were only a point or two off from getting that D minus. You you almost got course credit. That was my academic plan all throughout high school, just to barely get course credit, and um. So there's that kind of failing, and there's also, like, complete failure, right? Missing all the questions on the test, getting a a zero. And that's where we are, apart from Christ. We missed all the questions. We got it all wrong. We weren't even close to passing. It wasn't like we almost made the cut and Jesus just graced us with a little bit of his righteousness to, to kind of push us over the line. We're all on one side of the scale, and only Jesus is on the other. Only Jesus is righteous. And, and as we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? there is nothing good within us. We are depraved. I am a broken, hopeless wreck. And what's worse, usually I'm a self-righteous, hopeless, broken wreck. The good news is we don't have to stay that way, do we? He can fix what's broken inside of us. When we believe in him, when we turn from our sins, when we put our trust and our hope in him, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says the law could never do that. The law could never make us, right, make us righteous. All the law can do is make you self-righteous. When you do good and you keep all the rules of the law, you start thinking, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. And when you fail and you can't keep the law, you leave feeling condemned. All the law can do is reveal sin. The law in and of itself could never bring about true righteousness. The law can never deliver you from sin. And so Paul here, he tells the people, he says, listen, be careful. He says, other people have heard the message and they rejected it. Other people have seen the things of God and mocked it. He says, don't miss what God is saying here. Don't miss what God is doing here. It's only in him that we can find true right standing with God. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So after the message, the people begged Paul and Barnabas to stay and to continue teaching them about the things of Jesus, to tell them more about the Messiah. And we can infer that many people put their hope in Jesus Christ. They they found salvation and forgiveness. And it says that Paul and Barnabas encouraged them, and they reminded them that they needed to continue to walk in grace, that they needed to rely on the grace of God, not to trust in themselves, not to trust in their righteousness, not to trust in their works, but to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And as we close, I just want to look back at verse 38 real quick. Paul says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Are you unclear as to what Jesus wants for you? Are you unclear as to what God's will is for your life? This is it right here that we proclaim the name of Jesus. Your, Your destiny, right? God's will, God's plan for your life as a child of God is that you proclaim the name of Jesus, that you proclaim to the lost that only through Jesus Christ can man be forgiven of his sins. That only through Jesus Christ can mankind find peace and hope and healing and salvation. Only through a relationship with Jesus Christ, repentance and turning from our sins, can we be made whole and complete in the Lord. And that is our mission, to proclaim that message to the lost. that, That Jesus saved. There was a guy in first service sitting right there, and he had this T-shirt on, and it said Team Jesus. Right? If that's you, if you're on Team Jesus, that's your job description right there. Proclaim the gospel message to the lost. We're going to share in communion this morning. We're going to come together in the, at the Lord's table, and we're going to commemorate these, these things that we've been talking about. I would advise you to start opening your packet now. It takes a it takes a minute. All right, and communion, the Lord's table. It's about taking time to to reflect on the sacrifice that the Lord made on our behalf. And as we as we take the bread, we commemorate right we remember the body of christ we remember our lord's body was was broken that it was beaten that it was it was scourged remember how he was punched and he was abused remember how he he was whipped bearing the the penalty for our sins he took our stripes upon himself and as we contemplate that we we take the bread together And as we get ready to drink the juice together, we recall the blood of Jesus Christ. We recall his blood that was shed on our behalf. We remember the, the iron nails that were driven through his hands and through his feet. We remember that crown of thorns that was beaten down into his scalp. We remember how, how the blood flowed from our Savior. And we remember why. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. He died. He shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could have new life in him. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we we're eternally grateful for the cross, Lord. We're grateful that you sent your son to, to take our place, to bear the, the penalty and the burden of our guilt and shame, Lord. We pray that you would help us just to respond with humility and obedience and repentance, Lord, and just walking with you in your spirit. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.